This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Good morning. I'm Catherine Dalek, the Acting Director of the Forum on Contemporary Europe, and I have the great pleasure and honor of welcoming you all here today to our session, which is entitled A Changing Continent, Opportunities and Challenges for EU Expansion. In a process that was simply unimaginable 20 years ago, the EU has recently expanded from 15 members in 1995 uh, to 27 members today, including 10 former communist countries. There are many reasons to call EU enlargement a success story. Um, we can see many benefits from this enlargement process, uh, the securing of the European continent in a non-military and non-threatening way. Uh, the increasing of the economic pr prosperity and growth of its member states, uh, the allowing of an ease of movement uh, within the EU, uh, particularly for countries that had uh, almost ironclad borders, the um, inspiring of democratic human rights and market economy uh, reforms in countries that had little experience with any of these phenomena. Uh, and there is great hope for the peace role that the EU can play, uh, and certainly Kosovo is in most need of this today. Now, many claims have been made about the great promise of the EU as a superstate, as a, a state that has moved uh, beyond nationalism. And certainly expectations were extremely high um, as the U EU began expanding into the former Soviet bloc. But history, I think, has reasserted itself. Uh, and entry into the EU has not proven to be a panacea for the long-term uh, social, economic, um, and political problems uh, in the area. <coughs> Despite much preparation and monitoring of the new members before their uh, accession into the EU, we continue to see political instability, economic dislocation, ethnic tensions, uh, a lack of respect for human rights, and pervasive corruption. Relations between Russia and its smaller neighboring states continues to be problematic. Among those peoples who are aspiring to join the EU today, we still see an emphasis on the nation state and the desire of ever smaller units uh, to achieve state sovereignty, and specifically their own sovereign state. Uh, in the older members of the EU, uh, we see uh, an increasing preoccupation with the supposed threats uh, posed by the Polish plumber uh, and now the Romanian criminal. Uh, and we can see that the extension of the boundaries of the EU to the, to the shores of the Black Sea and to the very um, border of the former Soviet Union uh, has not truly made Europe one. Uh, distinctions still exist uh, between what's often termed now the new members and the old members, and this is both in terms of practices um, and perhaps more importantly perceptions, uh, especially from the outside. Plagued by uh, expansion fatigue, many now think that perhaps expansion uh, happened too quickly uh, and needs to slow down. Our three panelists today mm. will share their views on the recent and future of EU expansion, offering their assessments on successes, opportunities, and the stumbling blocks that the process entails. 
And we have only one hour uh, for this session, so in the interest of time, rather than giving full biographies of our speakers, I'd like to refer you to the conference brochure, which has uh, much more information about them. Um, and what we're, the way we'll do this today is I'll have each speaker uh, make their comments, and then I will open it up for questions. And um, I'd like to ask our speakers to keep their remarks to 10 to 15 minutes. Our first speaker is Mark Leonard, uh, an author and the executive director of the European Council on Foreign Relations. Thank you very much. It's a, it's a great honor to, to be here and I'm really very happy to, to be uh, at this event with the, with the forum. Um, I'm going to follow Mike McFall's uh, advice of, of being provocative uh, in this session. Um, and focus on the first half of the, the title of today's conference, uh, the, question, the, the, the word power. And I'm um, going to talk for a few minutes about enlargement as an a example of European power. I know the two words make quite an incongruous pair um, for a continent that, that is usually spoken about as a sort of limp-wristed um, uh, collection of, of cheese-eating surrender monkeys. Um, the idea of, of European power might be a surprising one, but I think that uh, the enlargement process is a very important signal of a new kind of power in an interdependent world. It's a sort of power that uh, we haven't fully understood either within the European Union or, or outside of it. And um, it's something which I think it is uh, quite a, a paradigm-changing event if we think about uh, the, the way the world is organized and how power will be organized in the 21st century. So I'm going to focus a bit on that. And in order to, to make my point about this being a, a kind of big paradigm-changing thing, I'd like to go back a bit in history and, and start with a, an ancient European myth, which a lot of you probably know about, the story of, of Tantalus, who was the ancient king of Sipolis in Asia Minor. And he uh, organized a dinner party and invited all the gods around to dinner and um, without telling them what, what they were eating, served his, his own son up as the, the entree. When the gods discovered what they had been eating, they were absolutely furious, and they spent a long time del deliberating how to inflict the most unpleasant punishment possible on, on, uh, on Tantalus for, for tricking them. And after a long debate, they decided to, to sentence him to a life of perpetual frustration. They immersed him up to his neck in water, but every time he, he bent to, to have a drink of it, the water somehow just uh, uh, drained away just below where, where he could reach. They hung luscious fruit above his head, but every time he reached it, reached for it, it would get blown just out beyond his, his, his reach. And um, what they discovered was that, you know, the gods could have, have smitten him from the face of the earth, but instead they, they made him suffer much more by, un, by dangling all sorts of things that he wanted in front of him and then withdrawing them and preventing him from ever, ever enjoying them. And this is really how the European Union wields its power today. The kingdom of Sipolis is in modern-day Turkey, and Tantalus's successors in the Turkish government, I think, can recognize his plight, because Turkey first applied to join the European Union in 1963. For four decades, it's had the prospect of membership dangled in front of it and then removed because of various failings in the Turkish government. And uh, in spite of that, in Turkey today, I think the prospect of joining the European club 
is the closest thing the country has to a unifying national dream. It's the one thing that significant numbers of secularists and Islamists and Anatolians, Kurds and Armenians can all get behind. And the results of, of this process of, of promising or dangling the prospect of membership in front of Turkey, but then withdrawing it, have been quite dramatic. Eight packages of, of legislative reform have gone through the Turkish parliament. They've abolished the death penalty. They've started to deal with torture in prisons, set up a Kurdish language television state and moderated their position on Cyprus. And Turkey's going through an incredibly sensitive and difficult patch at the moment, as we all know from, from the media. But I think in part, it's become difficult because this promise of European membership seems less clear now than it, it did at an earlier stage. I also think that what's happened in Turkey, as I said, does mark a shift in, in global politics. And you can see echoes of it in other places mm. um, around the European continent, in, in Kiev, in Sarajevo, in uh, various other European countries. And what I think has happened is this development of a new kind of power which I call transformative power which can't be measured in terms of military budgets or smart missile technology but is captured in treaties, constitutions, laws and when we stop looking at the world through a kind of 19th century or 20th century idea of power then you start to see that many of the things that look like European weaknesses are in fact the the uh, different facets of this kind of transformative power. So I'm just going to mention a few before uh, looking at some of the challenges that we're facing at the moment. So I think the first feature of, of this transformative power, which we see through an enlargement process, is the fact that the European Union is not a state. Henry Kissinger famously uh, is famously alleged to have complained that Europe doesn't have a single telephone number. Well, my advice to him is really to go out and buy a phone book because uh, it's not going to ever have a single telephone number. And that's Europe's greatest strength. It's a club of countries, a network of different centres of power that are united by common policies, common goals, bound together by uh, a common uh, le legal framework. And that allows the European Union to provide its members with all the benefits of being part of the largest single market in the world and to have a framework for dealing with all sorts of cross-border problems without compromising their political independence because actually on the most important issues which people care about, whether it's the levels of their taxes, their pensions, their education system, these decisions are all made at a national level rather than a European level. And uh, I think because decisions are taken by compromise and negotiation within the European club, it means that Europeans are naturally able to broker deals with those on the outside. The US built many of the global institutions that define the Cold War, but if you look at the post-Cold War era and the institutions of globalization like the WTO, Kyoto, the International Criminal Court, and also the regulation of the global economy, it tends to be Europeans that set the rules which, which, which other people have to stand by, even you know the mighty Microsoft has to bend to, to rules set in Brussels. This uh, links to the second feature of the European project, which is what, what I call passive aggression. The European Union doesn't project its power by threatening to invade other countries or to intervene in their internal affairs. Enlargement showed us that the absolute worst thing the European Union can do to a country it disapproves of is nothing at all. It, it, it uh, offers benefits, to, potential benefits to these countries and then threatens to withdraw them. So the threat is not to intervene in their affairs rather than to intervene in their affairs. The only thing that's worse than having EU officials coming to Ankara or Belgrade and telling you how to change your political systems is the threat of them not turning up at all. And that's really how the European Union has kind of wielded its power through enlargement. It, it links to the third feature of, of 
European power, which I think is, is the law. Many people present the European Union as a kind of modern-day Prometheus that's so bound up in red tape that it's unable to do anything at all. But in fact, it's the law which makes the European Union's power transformative because military power can allow you to change regimes in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. But the law and this obsession with getting people to, to, to stick to the rule of law allows you to change societies. The fact that every country that joined the European Union had to uh, absorb... Uh, what some people estimate is 95,000 pages of, of, of European legislation which govern everything from gay rights to food safety in order to get in meant that once countries had joined the European Union, they're changed forever, not in a transitory way which you get by putting troops on the ground uh, in different countries. These are democratically owned changes which, 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 which don't change immediately. So... And I think that the fourth thing which I think is interesting is the kind of uh, domino effect of Europe's own transformation. It, it, when the single market was, create, was first created in Europe, you started to see a trend towards greater regional integration in other parts of the world with ASEAN and Mercosur in Latin America. But, and what's, it, what is happening in a way is that every single continent is nurturing its own neighborhood clubs. Even China is, is trying to create an East Asian community. And what you'll see as this process unfolds, I think, is... is a world that's not a unipolar world run either by a world government like the United Nations or a single superpower like the United States, but an interlocking group of regional clubs that work together on, on different issues. And I think by the end of this century, we'll see what I call a European century, uh, a new European century emerging, not because the European Union will be the most powerful economic or social bloc, which it won't be, but because this way of doing things will have become the world's way of doing things. The only question mark with this kind of rosy scenario that I've outlined is whether the European Union is going to be able to continue doing what it's done before. And I'm going to end by maybe just looking at some of the question marks for enlargement, which I think, as, uh, as our chair pointed out at the beginning, has been an incredible success story. But at the moment, uh, the desire for enlargement seems to be waning. I'm sure Wolfgang will, will go into the, to, to this, but enlargement is increasingly seen as globalization writ small in many European countries. And people are kind of nervous about it. Uh, countries with high levels of unemployment are particularly nervous about it. But even in, in more dynamic economies like Britain and Ireland, uh, the European Union now is equated with, with massive waves of migration as a result of, of what's happened as a result of enlargement. Secondly, I think that um, uh, whilst there haven't actually been that many problems on, on agreeing on day-to-day -day business, some people said that when the European Union enlarged to 27, business would grind to a halt and it would be impossible to do anything. No evidence of that happening at all. But what is difficult is bringing about big institutional change because what you have now is 27 domestic political timetables which need to be dealt with. And every single time you, in, you add an extra country, it makes <clears> it more complicated, particularly if countries want to have referendums on different things. So the, the constitutional, the, 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 the difficulties in agreeing a constitution, I think, are partly to do with the intersection of all these different domestic, domestic political systems. Thirdly, um, the new member states... Uh, have uh, been freed from the shackles of the accession process where they were being forced to, to implement all of these European decisions and, and had to be on their best behaviour. And now that they no longer have to be on their best behaviour, surprisingly enough, they behave almost as badly as the existing uh, member states, well, the, the, the old member states of the European Union. And the rise of populism in some of these countries is quite uh, frightening, though in Poland we've seen a capacity for self-correction, which has been very dramatic and, and quite 
kind of heartrending. And, and, and Russia is another kind of issue which has emerged as a, a divisive issue that I think that actually that if you look carefully at it, and we just did a big study of, of all different countries' relations with Russia, the divisions aren't a clear split between, you know, Moscow uh, hugging old member states and Moscow hating new member states. In fact, it's a much more complex picture. But at the same time, I do think this process will continue. I am optimistic, first of all, because there's no alternative to enlargement for, for, for many of these countries. If you look at Croatia and Turkey, um, they've already, they, they're well uh, into their accession negotiations. I think they will be transformed by the process of doing the accession negotiations. And the question about whether they join or not will be different once they've changed. Secondly, in the rest of the Balkans, the choice is between running these countries like an empire or enlarging the European Union. And I think that enlargement will be a more attractive option than keeping troops on the ground and sending kind of viceroys to, to, to govern Bosnia um, in the future. And also, in places like Ukraine and Moldova, it's the European Union that is going to experience the blowback if these countries decide not to go down a European route, which I think it, it will mean that the calculus changes. And the neighbours of countries that are outside the European Union will always be strong advocates for them to join. So enlargement has got a kind of self-reinforcing dynamic. The final reason why I'm kind of optimistic is because I think that... Um, the pickup in, in European economies means that people are, are kind of looking uh, differently at it. Um, that which is one, There is a new treaty, which means that this implicit bargaining between deepening and widening can but kind of be restored. And actually, sorry, the real final reason is I think also that, that uh, we've got to a stage of 27 member states where we're going to need to completely rethink integration and enlargement. Because in the past, what uh, the, the European Union moved forward through treaties like the treaties which we had at Maastricht, Amsterdam, Nice, etc. And the assumption was that one size would fit all. But actually, I think once, t uh, I think this might already have come to an end, certainly will come to an end if, if Turkey joins. And the future integration is going to be driven by groups of countries coming together on particular issues and building new communities, whether it's around defence or the environment or other sorts of things. That will be done on the foundation of the existing 80, 95,000 pages that, that already exist. And um, uh, that will also mean that if you have a kind of more messy European Union, which looks like a Venn diagram rather than a, a kind of a, a target with, with concentric circles, it'll be easier for countries outside the European Union to take part in some of these things, whether integrating more closely into the market or, for example, joining an, an, an energy community, which we've already started to do in the Balkans and in other areas. And I think... Uh, if we, if we, if we um, think about the European Union not just as a single Europe, but a number of different Europes that will run the 21st century, then um, I think this process of enlargement will continue, and I think that we will see that this new facet of European power will actually become quite a dramatic and, and uh, transformative uh, one in the 21st century. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, our next speaker will be Monica McElvey, currently the advisor on anti-corruption to the Prime Minister of Macedonia. She was formerly the Minister of Justice in Romania. Thank you. Um, a few words uh, about my background. I was the Justice Minister in Romania from December 2004 to April 2007, so two years before the accession and three months after the accession. Uh, I was not a member of any political party. I was the, the only non-political uh, minister. I was supported uh, uh, by a party. Uh, this was a, rather a unique experience for Romania and I believe for many countries to have a non-political minister. Uh, 
I think that was a, a very good idea, and I would encourage other candidate countries to do this, uh, because if you do, if you want to do the judicial reform and to start a fight against uh, political corruption, uh, I think it's better to have a non-political uh, uh, um, actor uh, in this uh, uh, in this field. Uh, I would also like to 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 talk about the importance, uh, the huge importance of the uh, EU expansion uh, for uh, the post-communist countries in particular. Uh, I, uh, I have this experience in Romania. I also worked in Bosnia-Herzegovina, uh, sometimes in Croatia, now in Macedonia. Uh, I would say that this is, uh, I believe this is a unique uh, uh, moment for these countries, a unique uh, historical moment uh, to bring, uh, to support, uh, uh, to implement the profound reforms uh, these countries have to do. Uh, basically, at the beginning of 90s, in all these post-communist countries, there was a need of uh, a lot of reforms, uh, constitutional reforms, uh, judicial reforms, reforms of the administration, education, health, and so on. Basically, the entire countries had to be uh, changed and reforms. And um, uh, also, quite recently, uh, uh, towards the end of the transition period, I would also say, and I believe that uh, these countries are also in need of the reform of the political class. It is a political class which was produced by the transition, which was the result of the transition. Uh, the transition meaning, uh, 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 in particular, at the beginning, weak institutions, uh, unstable legislative uh, framework, uh, uh, little accountability for the civil servants and for the politicians, corruption, and so on. So uh, in addition to all those reforms, now the, the, uh, is the need of the reform of the political class. Now, uh, all these reforms are, uh, as uh, uh, William Perry said in the morning, are uh, expensive and inconvenient. Uh, I won't argue why, I think it's obvious why. They are all expensive and uh, in particular if we talk about the reform of the political class, it would be against the political class, so it's uh, not something uh, they would go for. And the same with other professional categories. Usually people don't like changes. They, they want to do things the same way they have done it for uh, uh, many years in the past. Now, all these reforms, uh, as I said, expensive and inconvenient, they need, uh, in addition to the public opinion, they need some push, they need uh, agents of change, they need uh, support. And here comes this uh, role of the European Union. That's why I said it, it's basically a unique uh, uh, opportunity for these countries, because otherwise, all these changes but, uh, 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 might never be accomplished in some countries, or might be accomplished, might have been accomplished uh, in hundreds of years, not in uh, 15 or 17 years. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I, I really believe that uh, the push, uh, the pressure, uh, we can say nicely the support, the encouragement of the European Union was, uh, was vital for, uh, uh, for the reforms in these countries. Obviously, these reforms were not finished. They, at least they were started and uh, some steps were done uh, uh, quicker than uh, they would have been done uh, otherwise. Uh, now, uh, because uh, uh, it was mentioned the success of the accession and also the, uh, the steps back uh, uh, some countries did after the accession, uh, I would also like to say a few words on this. In practice, uh, it, it, it proved to be difficult uh, for the European Union. Uh, 
sometimes countries made promises before the accession and then they didn't respect them after the accession. And uh, I think this is something to be expected, uh, looking back now. Uh, and uh, uh, I would say that uh, in all these uh, new member states, uh, the experience is not uh, totally great. I mean, it's great, uh, as I said, uh, without the EU accession, there would have been uh, no such reforms. However, uh, there is this uh, uh, going uh, uh, for going back uh, at least for a period after the uh, uh, after the accession. Uh, I can uh, give you some examples. I won't touch other countries. I will only uh, say a few words about Romania. For instance, nice laws uh, which were adopted before the accession, like. Uh, 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 transparency in funding political parties, uh, uh, the law which, uh, like transparency uh, in funding political parties adopted in 2006, it was suspended in February 2007, two months after the accession, suspended for one year. I don't think it's something, everyone would think that laws could be suspended after that. Or the law on uh, bankruptcy, uh, providing that all companies, state or private, if they uh, are in a bankruptcy stage, they go bankrupt through a unique uh, equal procedure uh, before the accession as also an anti-corruption measure. After the accession, uh, in after one or two months, this law was uh, suspended for uh, 28 companies. Now again, that's something which no one expected, not the EU, not uh, me or other people uh, in, uh, in uh, good faith. Uh, you, in a rule of law country, you don't suspend a law for uh, 28 uh, people, me and my friends. Uh, but still, I mean, uh, these are known by the EU com European Commission, uh, and uh, there will be a reaction uh, back, even if not, uh, 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 you know, very quickly. Uh, now, what the benefit is that these countries will have to play by the rules. Okay, they could be nasty at some, uh, at the beginning, like, I don't know, a few months or one or two years, but at the end of the day, they will have to play by the rules, and uh, this is the uh, the big uh, benefit uh, of the accession. And uh, and uh, as you said, uh, I, I don't think any other way to do it, and any other uh, that was the only uh, good choice uh, to make. Um, also, a few words about uh, uh, I think which was is now. Uh, the subject which fascinates me after this experience in the, in the government, not being a politician, the fight against political corruption. Uh, this was a requirement uh, uh, in particular for Romania and Bulgaria, uh, the fight uh, to have cases for, uh, of uh, high political corruption, big fishes. And uh, we, started to, we started this uh, before the accession and we had cases with politicians, MPs, ministers, uh, uh, indicted and sent to trial. Uh, and immediately after the accession, um, <coughs> not only that this stop, but the political class, which was basically, uh, it felt, uh, of course, it was very concerned. It was against uh, themselves because they were investigated. Uh, uh, they started to attack uh, uh, the anti-corruption uh, uh, bodies and to try to uh, dismantle them. Uh, this is again, uh, I think, uh, uh, a reaction to be expected. Uh, this is the risk when you fight political corruption in countries with corrupt politicians, which make the rules and make the laws. And of course, they don't uh, uh, stay still and they fight back. Uh, uh, but again, this is a stage I think we have to uh, to go through. Um, 
it's good that the European uh, Commission is doing uh, in Romania and Bulgaria uh, a report every two years. There is a mechanism of verification after the accession. Uh, and uh, so there is still uh, a say, which is, of course, not the same as before the accession, but it's still a say on, uh, on corruption and uh, uh, other, uh, other reforms. Uh, I would say the challenge now for the European Commission is uh, to have these countries playing by the rules as uh, quickly as possible. And uh, also I'd like to say uh, 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 as at the end that uh, uh, there was no other choice than uh, EU accession. And also for the uh, United States, I think it's also uh, EU accession a benefit, like uh, United States is now sharing the cost uh, for these countries, uh, for bringing democracies to these countries, uh, uh, sharing the cost with the European Union. Thank you. Our, our final speaker this morning is Wolfgang Munchau, the Associate Editor and European Union com columnist of the Financial Times. Catherine, thank you very much. Um, and also thank you for, the, for this very kind invitation to speak, to speak here. Um, when I'm, I'm going to talk about the political economy and the economic implications of, of, of enlargement. And when, uh, um, uh, before accession in the years 2000 to 2004, we thought the effect, we had, we had sort of four basic thoughts, or basic ideas on what the effect of enlargement is going to be. None of those uh, expectations uh, in the end um, uh, were fulfilled. The first one would be that the economic effect of, en that enlargement would be economically a non-event in terms of the, we, we thought that most of the economic adjustments had already happened by the time enlargement would, would, would occur. In the 1990s, most of the outsourcing, uh, the, the effect of, it, of, the, of the event, the, the fulfillment of enlargement itself should not be a direct economic effect. The second uh, thought or the second assumption we made was that the, uh, the accession countries would form a liberal voting bloc in the EU and uh, joined the UK, some of the Scandinavian uh, or the North, Northern European countries uh, in pushing for a more liberal policy agenda. The third one would, was that they would all be very quick and very keen to join the Euro. And the fourth one would be that the so evident success of enlargement would make it very easy uh, for further rounds of enlargement, especially to Turkey. Now, all those expectations are wrong. They don't, the, the fact that they're wrong doesn't add up to a negative, but, but it, the, the process that we've seen is very different. Start off with the first one about the, the, the direct economic effects of enlargement. It is true that in the 1990s, a lot of companies did outsourcing. <coughs> For example, many German manufacturing companies have manufacturing plants in Slovakia or Poland or the, the Czech Republic. Um, a famous example is the Porsche Cayenne car, which is to 95% sourced in uh, Eastern European countries, even though people think it is a German car. It is essentially produced, um, produced in, in Central Europe. Um, the the uh, degree of outsourcing didn't pick up with enlargement. That in, 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 that was true. Most of it did actually happen in the 1990s and uh, and the early part of this uh, decade. But we, we massively underestimated the labor market effect of enlargement. The the degree of immigration, the degree of labor. We thought we were protected by the seven-year transition period. Now there was a when enlargement happened ahead of enlargement. There was a a, the last one of the mo last uh, compromises that was negotiated was the the time it would take for for free movement of labor, the, the, which is a, a right everybody shares in the in the EU, uh, for, for how long it would be, uh, whether there's a transitional period, 
And ultimately, the, the agreement was to have a seven-year uh, transition, or countries could adopt a seven-year, seven it's slightly more complicated, it's not a seven-year period, but it's, it's, it's different periods that add up to seven years. The UK decided not to, not to have it, Germany decided to, and France decided to invoke it. That meant that uh, the hope was that this would sort of stave off the immigration. It didn't do anything of the sort because what happened is that the immigration happened except that the, the uh, Central East Europeans didn't come as, as employees but they actually came up as, as uh, self-employed operators and uh, which in many, in many respects made it, uh, uh, it, didn't, it didn't offer the kind of what, they, what, what was thought to be protection. And, uh, for example, uh, the, the famous example of the Polish plumber in Paris. In fact, the Polish plumber is more of a, of a feature in London, where plumbing previously had been incredibly expensive. Anyone who had li ever lived in London tells endless stories of the cost of plumbing. Now uh, they tell stories of the cost of Polish plumbing. Yes. <laughs> is there right <laughs> enough to go around? That's right. And we, in, in Brussels, where, where I live, um, we've seen... Uh, uh, when enlargement happened, the typical price of a Polish or Romanian... Uh, contractor, whether a plumber, well, it was about four euros an hour. That was a very low, if you take roughly, it's no longer the case, but one euro being one dollar at the time, that's, uh, you know, it's a very low, a, a, a low salary for a qualified, this is a qualified, a qualified worker. Um, in those years, the prices have actually gone up. And there's now a shortage of, of, the, of, of, of Polish plumbers in many, many respects. Now in Brussels now the going rate, the black market rate, or the, it's not a black market rate, but it's partially a black market rate, is about 15 euros. So you see you know, a certain wage inflation. So a lot of these problems that we see are sort of big and so they are transitional. And you know, the, the, at, at 15 euros the, Pol the Polish rate is not that different from the German rate. So we're, not, we're no longer in the, in this, in the, in the phase where you, where the where the where the effect is um, where the effect is a, a, a lowering a lowering of, um, of of hourly wages. Um, now the second the interesting thing is though that this shift in the labour market the and and the effect of outsourcing previously has had an, a huge economic uh, effect on, on 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 West Europe. And if if you look at the various economic reforms we've undertaken. And, and, and often with not a great success, and often they had to be taken back, uh, the effect of enlargement was probably, the, the, in economic terms, the biggest single effect in terms of improvement in productivity in, in Europe. Much bigger than labor market reforms and much bigger than all those reform programs we've spoken about, we've endlessly discussed and, and, and as part of the Lisbon agenda, etc. Without enlargement, we would not have been, uh, we would not have gone as far as we did in terms of improving the economy and the, and the what we're now seeing as a fairly welcome economic expansion in Europe, uh, uh, owes to a great extent its its dynamism through that through that factor. Um, now it causes transitional problems, as we've as we said, and what we've seen the, the very ugly uh, political response in Italy to Romanian uh, criminals as. Uh, it's really, it really is a disguise. There is a, there is a, an immigration problem. There is, you know, the, the same. The, they're taking jobs away, and now it's now sort of disguised as, as we, we would like to, to be to be able to deport criminals. In reality, this is a very typical protectionist uh, response by the Italian government. But it, it shows you the kind of uh, Germany had similar similar things, not quite as bad, where they tried to impose minimum sectoral minimum wages to get uh, to get people out. 
um, with not a great deal of success and huge political controversy. So there are all these transitional things you read about in newspapers. We all get very excited about. Take a take a slightly longer term view. This is this is just a transitional problem. The the uh, you know. At the very latest in 2011 for Bulgaria, Romania in 2013, there is a single labor market, and that will that um, what we now see as immigration will become will become a very natural um, natural thing. So the economic effects were interesting but unexpected. Now, in terms of the political, the political economy side, we assumed we all were still haunted by Donald Rumsfeld's New Europe, Old Europe thing, haunted because partly it was sort of our worst nightmare. And that's that's why it sort of resonated. It was not because we accepted it or believed it, but it, it, it kind of it kind of showed us if this division were sort of to, to, to maintain to be maintained, then we would be in in very serious trouble. Fortunately, that didn't turn out to be the case. The East Europeans are not a block. The Central Europeans. We talk about them as sort of the East Europeans, the Central European, the accession countries. Even now, five years on, we still talk four years on, we still talk about the accession countries as though they were sort of a unique a unique bunch. That is certainly not the case. They're not all liberal. Or like Slovakia, you think they are liberal, and then they have an election, and they stop being liberal, and uh, and they they're very much like us. You know, if you look at uh, West Germany after the Second World War, it was liberal in an economic sense for 20 years, and then you know then that is probably not the, the, the characteristic you would, the first characteristic of Germany you would apply today is being liberal, and therefore uh, you know there is change, there is change, there's change in Slovakia. Mark has spoke about uh, spoken about the change in Poland. Uh, you know, we thought we thought they were obviously the thought of the Kaczynski twins being there forever is would have been troubling. But you know there is a, there are democratic processes in place, and there is now a new <coughs> government, uh, much more pro-European, much more favor in favor of of, of Europe. Um, and so so the idea of sort of a lib, sort of of a, of a fundamental ideological conflict between the the old the older member states and the newer member states doesn't doesn't arise. Um, in many ways, you could say that old Europe is getting younger and young Europe is getting older, and um, and that that is pretty much pretty much the case. Especially if you think that some of the new member states were long-term members of the Habsburg Empire, and that is pretty much as conservative as as Europe has ever gotten. Um, the third part is we thought they would all want to join the euro. The fact is they don't, and uh, that many of the economic policies they have undertaken have been very much contrary to joining the euro. And a good example is Hungary. Hungary's um, economic policies up until about a year ago, which included huge increases in the budget deficit to an extent that they, it reached 9% of GDP uh, uh, last year. Now this process is now being, being, being reversed. Another big problem is, um, is that some of the countries are running very huge current account deficits. Now there is no current account deficit requirement that you have to keep your current account deficit to below a certain threshold to join the euro. But obviously, there is a danger. For example, if there was international financial turbulence, the kind of which we, many of us expect to happen in the next year or two as this subprime crisis becomes a wider credit crisis, a wider global economic crisis, there will be financial turbulence. And that will leave the countries that are not in the eurozone particularly vulnerable. Uh, so we've seen some, some some elements of that in 2006 in the summer, when there was a, 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 a very brief moment where investors sold off emerging market uh, uh, currencies. We had problems in Hungary, problems in Turkey, problems in some of the uh, Baltics. Um, so there is an, a, a potential threat of destabilization, and, uh, uh, and and it would probably then change also change the debate of making the euro more, more a more desirable place. Uh, a place to, to be. I already see a change of sentiment in Poland, 
as we, as we said, there is now a government that is more, more pro-Europe, so this anti-European tide was, again, only, in my view, a, a transitional for, uh, a period. In the long run, they will all want to join, but the, we, we shouldn't underestimate the adjustment process to that. Economically, it's very difficult to keep both a stable inflation rate and a stable infla exchange rate at the same time, so there will be some, some conflicts that, that happen, especially the countries that tie their currency to the euro, like some of the Baltics. Uh, have an inflation problem because the, 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 the exchange rate can no longer absorb any 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 shocks and so so at the moment you would you would be uh, you cannot uh, countries that for example revalue against the euro like Turkey uh, which is sort of you know at the moment it's it's one of the few currencies that are actually rising against the euro uh, Turkey uh, you know would have had a much bigger inflation problem if 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 it had tied its currency to the euro so there there are many many threats ahead but the the, the good news i would think that uh, i would expect by the middle of next the next decade much later than we expected but by the middle of the next decade for most of the uh accession countries to be in the eurozone um probably not the uk that will be quite <laughs> quite interesting but i think they will they will join the eurozone before the uk will um now fourth and my final point is the uh, the effect on further enlargement. Um, and we've seen, I know uh, Nicolas Sarkozy is very, very popular in America at the moment, having held a, a very emotional speech in, in, in Congress. Um, but if you look at some of his policies in, in, in closer detail, he is in many ways encapsulating the, the populist mood in Europe, which is very much a, a mood against the economic effects of enlargement. Um, and he is calling for more protectionism. He doesn't call it ism, he calls it more protection. Uh, he means more protection against job losses, and he means it, and he defines it not on a European level, interesting, but on a purely national French level. So a French shop that goes to Germany or to, to Italy is, is, is a problem for him. Um, and it, it needs to be counteracted on a European level, which I never quite understand how, how that works. But one, one of the things we need, to, we need to see, there is sort of a, a, a protectionist mood in building up in Europe. We've got to be very careful, careful and not, not to underestimate that mood uh, politically. Um, and that protectionist mood is partly in evidence in the way we negotiated the, the reform treaty. We've had uh, you know, some clauses deleted, which were... Which were uh, which, which uh, called for more competition in Europe, which were which were relegated to a, a, a lower status. Um, there is we're going to see this in trade policy, um, um, and therefore I would think that this is something that and, and we call it in, in also in terms of our ability or uh, in our wish to to continue with the single market. You know the next big program in the single market would have been service deregulation, financial services deregulation. All these things are happening, but they're not happening at the speed that we thought they should be happening. And uh, and that is sort of all part of our sort of getting getting much more cautious about um, opening up the market. So we've been through a sort of twenty year phase where we've sort of increased the, the the market liberalism in Europe, and we are now at a phase politically where there are elected politicians, you know, like Sarkozy, who want to go back, not all the way back, but they want to take take some of it back. And even Merkel is in, in, in some who we all th or who has this reputation of being an ultra liberal, you know. Even she is sort of she wants to protect the German financial sector, which is mostly state owned. So there are many there are many there are many elements in Europe, even on the right on the left, who are very cautious about further 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 liberalisation. And that is that is possibly the biggest threat for the next round of enlargement. Um, so all this debate about you know cultural difference with Turkey and political differences, I think what it, the, main, the main the main obstacle at this moment. And I, I would expect Sarkozy, if he if he's reelected, he you know he's still got ten years ahead of him as as French president, 
and probably will not accept Turkish enlargement, uh, enlargement to Turkey in that, in that period. So we're talking about something that's going to take place, not in the middle of the next decade, but at the earliest, at the end of next decade. And we're going to go through a phase where, where it will probably look less likely for Tur that Turkey would join the, the, join the era as this sort of protectionism takes hold. Uh, I would still expect and hope that Turkey will join the EU eventually, but um, um, uh, I myself am, am in favor of it because not least we have much to gain from it, uh, not just politically but also economically because by the time Turkey will join it will be a very modern modern economy. But I would expect that the in the in the mean in the interim phase we would going to see a, a move in the opposite direction. So I remain as optimistic as Mark in the long run, but not as quite as optimistic in the short run. Thank you. Thank you very much. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.